Hello, this is Pastor Don from the Atlantic Evangelical Free Church. I want to thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can check us out on the web at AtlanticFreeChurch.com. In the meantime, I hope the sermon you're about to hear draws you closer to the Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening, and God bless you. Okay, so the scripture reading this morning is um, from Psalms 127. Um, the name of it is, Unless the Lord Builds the House... It's a song of ascents of Solomon, unless the, Lord's built, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's in vain, that, it, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives his beloved sleep Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. Fruit of the room is a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one youth. Blessed, blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gates. Well, good morning. Happy Father's Day to all you dads. Good to be, be together with you to celebrate Dad's Day today. Uh, this morning, I'm going to follow the same pattern I followed on Mother's Day. Uh, on Mother's Day, we looked at a psalm, just like we're doing today. We're kind of looking at some psalms for about two or three months here in the late spring, early summer. And on Mother's Day, we looked at a psalm that applies to everyone. Obviously, God's word is, is for everybody. But there were some unique applications in that psalm for moms and, and women in general. And so we kind of talked to moms on Mother's Day, and I invited everyone else to, to listen in, to, to eavesdrop on what I had to say to moms. And we're going to do the same thing today. The passages we're going to look at this morning, it is two. I asked Paul to, uh, Joe to read Psalm 127, but we're actually going to look at 127 and 128 together because they complement each other. And these two psalms uh, apply to everybody, but... They, as you'll see, they, they kind of zoom in on men. And so we're going to talk to, to men today in honor of Father's Day, but I hope you'll eavesdrop even if you're not uh, a man, even if, uh, even if you're not a dad, although it's not only for dads, but uh, I, I hope you'll listen in. So, so turn, please, to Psalm 127 and 128, and let's pray, and then we'll, we'll get right into it. <clears throat> Lord, thank you so much. Uh, for your word and how you speak to us. And I would ask this morning for myself and everyone who's hearing my voice, uh, whether it's here in this room or those who are joining us online or maybe even someone who will catch this afterwards, uh, that uh, you will bear witness to the truth, Lord, uh, with our souls through these two psalms, through these words of scripture today. May the meditations uh, of all our hearts, the words of my mouth, may they be pleasing, pleasing to you. Ask this in the great and awesome name of Jesus Christ, our exalted Savior. Amen. What makes a man successful? What makes a man successful? Uh, it's a straightforward question, but the answer is not as easy as you'd think it would be. You'd think we'd have an easy answer to that one, but actually, there's all kinds of answers, aren't there? Uh, some people say success is measured by finances. Right? Just straight up, it's a, it's a financial calculation. The more money you have, the more successful you are. Or as the old bumper sticker used to say, he who dies with the most toys wins. That's one way to measure it, financial success. And a lot of people use that one. Uh, others measure it by personal satisfaction. 
I think some people have figured out that money isn't the way. And, and so the big question some will ask these days is, does your life make you happy? Do you feel good about it? Do, do you feel happy about how you're leaving, li living? If you do, then you're successful. That's another, another measure. Uh, some measure it by power. How much influence do you have? Some measure it by fame. How well known are you? Uh, others measure it in terms of physical prowess. Uh, that's a big one in our culture. How athletic are you? How strong are you? How low is your body mass index? That's a, a measure of success that people use. Uh, some measure it with uh, experiences. How many cool places have you been to? How many exotic, uh, extreme sports have you done? Have you jumped out of an airplane? That sort of thing. That becomes a, a measure of success. And, and so you see what I mean. It, it's not such a simple question. Uh, to answer when we ask the question, what makes a man successful? That brings us to uh, the texts we're going to look at this morning, because I think these two psalms tell us God's answer to this question. That's really what they're all about. Uh, if we were to put the question to God, Lord, what makes a man successful? I think Psalm 127 and 128 together tell us what he would say. And his answer is that a, a truly successful man, and I'm going to use truly because the idea that God, but we're using God's measure here, a truly successful man is one who puts first things first. A truly successful man puts first things first. He, he figures out what the most important thing is in life, and then he makes that thing and everything that flows out of it his highest Priority. That's a truly successful man. Uh, we're going to do two things this morning. First, I want to show you what God says is the highest priority. That's where we have to start. Uh, a successful man puts first things first. Okay, what's the first thing? And that's where we'll start. And then I want to take you, and this is where, we'll, where we'll, we will actually spend most of our time, I want to show you four pleasures that a successful man enjoys. Good things, Paul said this earlier in, in leading worship, good things come to those who put first things first. The, the, the good things come to those who, who make God's highest priority their highest priority. And, and that's not to say our lives will be perfect. That's not the case. Uh, we'll just get that out of our idea, our heads right now. We're not saying this morning that if you do what I'm going to tell you to do, that uh, your life will be perfect. That's not what it says. Uh, but there are benefits that come to those who live God's way. And, and that's what we'll talk about in kind of the last two-thirds or so of the sermon. We'll, we'll look at those four pleasures, those four benefits. So uh, let's, let's get into the text. And we begin with priority one, the top priority. What, what is that first thing that we need to put first uh, that we need to put first. And the answer in both of these psalms, and they, they each say it individually, and I think God has arranged them so that they come right after each other because so, they, they kind of carry the load together here. Uh, what these two psalms tell us is that the highest priority is to seek the Lord. That's the first thing. Seek the Lord first. It's not, it's not that cute little baby in the picture. You thought it might be that on Father's Day, but it's not. Priority one is seeking the Lord. Uh, let's start with Psalm 127. See where God says it there. Uh, I'll read uh, verses 1 and 2. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of your anxious toil. Uh, we'll stop there. Uh, there's a couple of word pictures there. Verse 1 uh, especially has two of them right in a row, and they both say the same thing. They're, 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 it's parallelism. They say the same thing. They both say that seeking the Lord is more important than our own efforts. 
If you want to be prosperous, if you want to be counted as, success, as a success, uh, what you need to do is you need to seek the Lord instead of trying to work your way to success. Right? That, that's the idea, because it, it, he says that. You can work as hard as you can work. You can put all of your best effort and intellect and everything else you have to, to, to share with, with the world. You can bring it all to bear, but if you leave out God, it's not going anywhere, unless the Lord, unless the Lord, he says. And so, uh, and so what do we need instead? So it's like, okay, so you've told me what not to do. Uh, what do I need to do instead? Well, it's seek him, right? That's that emphasis there. That's how the house gets built. I know he doesn't actually say seek the Lord in verse one, but that's what he's saying, isn't it? Because you want the house to get built. You want the city to be watched over so the enemy doesn't invade it. So what do you need to do? Well, you need to seek the Lord. The builders and the watchmen who seek the Lord are the ones who are successful in, in what they do. Psalm 128 says the same thing. It just comes right out and says it. Uh, there's word pictures in, verse, uh, in chapter 127. Psalm 128 just says, uh, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord and who walks in his ways. Verse 1, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord and walks in his ways. Uh, that word blessed is key. The word blessed is actually used a lot in the Bible. It's used a lot in the Psalms. And, and it really... It drives the question I started with this morning. As I was studying these psalms, that kind of gave birth to the introduction. Uh, because really, when, it, when, when, it's, when you talk about God's blessing, really, that's the one who is successful. Who's successful? Biblically speaking, it's the one that God says he's successful. Right? He, he's the one whose stamp of approval you want more than anybody else's. And so really, you know, what makes a man successful is really asking biblically, who's blessed? Who's the blessed man? And from the Bible's, you know, it's, it's kind of going like this, the, the Bible's answer to that is, well, it's the one God blesses. That's who's successful. It's the one who's got God's stamp of approval on his life. And so it says, the Lord blesses those who fear him and who walk in his ways. The ones who seek him, who go after him, who, who fear the Lord and walk in his ways. Uh, let me explain those two phrases. Uh, we'll take fear the Lord first. Blessed are those who fear the Lord. Um, let me just summarize that concept. The fear of the Lord is kind of a broad concept in Scripture. It gets used a lot. If I were to try to summarize it for you in just a sentence, I would say that the fear of the Lord, to, to fear the Lord means to revere him and obey him. I think you can really reduce it down to that. It's, 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 you know, not, for a believer, to fear the Lord isn't to live in terror of him. That's not what it is for us. It, may, it is for unbelievers. Uh, but, but for believers, to fear the Lord is to, to revere him and to obey him. That, that's, that's what the fear of the Lord is. And so, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. Blessed is everyone who, who reveres him, worships him, and who obeys him. And then the, the second half of that is just, it, it's repeating the same idea with different words. It's called parallelism, and it happens a lot in the Psalms. And so he says, everyone, blessed is everyone who walks in his ways. Blessed is everyone who walks in his ways in the Lord's ways. And that a picture of walking, it's, one, it's another one we've talked about a lot as we were finishing Matthew and even as we've looked at some of the Psalms uh, the last several weeks. Uh, walking with the Lord is a metaphor for living with the Lord, right? Step by step, day by day, as we walk the journey of life, we're living with the Lord. And so if you put those two together, revering him, obeying him, walking with him, it's the idea that our lives are saturated with him as we seek his his face as we seek his ways. And so his values become our values. 
The things he cares about are the things we care about. If he cares about the lost, we care about the lost. If he cares about world evangelism, we care about world evangelism. If he cares about the poor, we care about the poor. I mean, it goes right down. If he cares about purity, be holy as I am holy, we care about purity. It's, it, that's all packed into uh, verse 1 of chapter 128. Blessed is the one, uh, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord and who walks uh, in his ways. All of which is a way to, 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 I'm taking my terminology here from Jesus, all of that is a description of someone who seeks the Lord above everything else. Because isn't that what Jesus told us to do, right? When Jesus goes to make this same point, he does it in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says those famous words, uh, Matthew 6, 31, uh, do not worry, <laughs> saying what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? What's he saying? He's saying don't obsess about worldly success. Don't get all hung up on, on that stuff. Why, Jesus? Well, the pagans run after those things, but your heavenly Father knows you need them. Well, what should I do instead, Jesus? Seek first his kingdom. Matthew 6, 33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. God will take care of the rest. And so, brothers, if I could speak to my, my fellow men today, that's our top priority. You see it in Psalm 127, you see it in 128, you see it in the Sermon on the Mount, you see it in a hundred other passages. Our top priority is to seek Jesus Christ and his kingdom first and foremost. If you want to be truly successful, if you want to be truly prosperous, successful men, seek God first. Now that brings us to the pleasures of the prosperous man. And that's what all the rest of the verses we have in front of us uh, talk about today, right? We got the principle in verse 1 of, of both passages, but now we have the benefits. What, what's going to happen if you do? Uh, what, what's, what's God going to do in your life? And I will say these benefits, they kind of function as priorities, right? Because if these are the pleasures of a prosperous man, these are the things that are most important. And so we have our top priority, seek the Lord, but then these four pleasures, these are the things that, if, if, if these things are operating in your life, then, then God's smiling on, on your life. Let me say one more thing, though, before we get into those. Uh, I, have to, I have to put this in biblical context, these two psalms, because it is possible. I actually worried a lot about this this week, because it would be possible for someone to walk away from this sermon feeling really awful, and you're not supposed to. You're not supposed to walk away feeling really awful. And we can avoid that by understanding what these passages are doing. Uh, the psalms we're looking at this morning are called wisdom psalms. Right, so there are different classifications of psalms. We've got 150 psalms in our Bible, but they don't all function the same way. Uh, there's different ones. You have praise psalms that praise God. You have uh, lament psalms. Right? You have songs of complaint where somebody goes to God and is like, ah, I'm so hurt, I'm so so much pain, or my enemies stink. Those are your laments or your complaints. Um, you have uh, war psalms. There's actually a couple of psalms that are good if you're going to war. I mean, there's, there's all these different kinds of psalms. And there's about 10 of the psalms that have more in common with Proverbs than they do with, say, a psalm of praise. They're not really praise psalms so much as they are proverbial. They are wisdom literature. And the two we're looking at this morning are both wisdom psalms. They function a lot more like Proverbs than they do a praise song that we might sing. And so here's what that means. If you've ever studied Proverbs or looked into Proverbs, you know Proverbs is not a book of promises. You've got to understand that when you read Proverbs. It's not a book of promises. It is a book of principles. Proverbs tells you how God's universe works uh, in general. Uh, there are always exceptions. And the exceptions aren't God's fault. They're our fault. The exceptions are because of sin. 
And so it's sin in the world in general, or it's our own sin, or it's somebody else's sin. Maybe we do everything right, but then somebody sins and hurts us, and we had no control over it. Or there's disease in the world, there's accidents in the world, there's violence in the world. And so there's all of these other things that kind of undermine the principles. But in principle, Proverbs tells us how God's, God's world works. Right? That's how Proverbs functions. And that's what's going on in these two psalms, all right? So, so we do need to understand that what we are getting here is principle, not promise. Which means, as you think about these psalms this morning, and this is especially helpful for, I, th- I personally think, for younger people, because you've still got so much ahead of you, but, but it's good for all of us. These two psalms are aspirational. A- and what I mean by that is they show us what the prosperous life really looks like. Because there's all kinds of people these days who want to tell you what the prosperous life looks like, right? Go on, on Instagram. You've got a thousand different definitions of what the prosperous life looks like. You have all of these suggestions. But, but the, 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 these two psalms tell us that, that sitting on the beach with a cool drink and a gorgeous companion, that is not the good life. That might be what the beer commercial tells you is the good life, but that's not the good life. This is the good life. Psalm 127 and 128. That's what the, these four pleasures that we, we're going to talk about now. So, so think about these two passages from that perspective. These aren't promises, but they're showing us God's best, what God wants us to go after. So with that in mind, let's, let's talk about them. what are these, these four pleasures? Well, the first pleasure is inner peace, inner peace. And we see this, it's not a big emphasis, but it's there enough that I really want to bring it out. We see it in the resolution of the problem introduced in the first two verses of Psalm 127. Right? So do you remember what he said? Uh, I, I don't know if it was love of these verses. They, they resonate. You know, he, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake for no good reason. Right? They, they stay awake in vain. And, and when I read that through a New Testament lens, he's saying men who live without Christ are wearing themselves out. It's, it's vain. Twice he repeats that term. It's vain to try to do whatever it is you do in your life, whatever it is, men or women, whatever your, your younger people, older people, uh, it, it's vain to try to do it without the Lord. It, it's like um, that, that picture, it's a, the same word that's used in Ecclesiastes, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Uh, it's, it's like working for hours to build a sandcastle on the beach. Right? If you're doing that with your kids and you're having fun, that's great. Right? If you're building a sandcastle for fun, cool. That's wonderful. If you're building a sandcastle to leave a lasting impression on the world, you're wasting your time. It's vain. The tide's going to come in sooner than later, and it's going to wash all your work away. That's the picture here. It's the same with our lives. If we live them apart from the Lord, if we're not seeking him first, it all just washes it away. And then verse 2 drives home the point. I love these word pictures. It's, it's in vain, he repeats the word again, that you rise up early and go late to rest eating the bread of anxious toil. It reminds me of a Dilbert comic strip, right? You know, you get up early, you go to bed late, you work 12 hours, and the pointy-haired boss comes in and, you know, says something dumb that makes you, you know, regret ever becoming an engineer in the first place, or whatever it is. You know, it's, it's that kind of a picture. And, and then he, he says, all you get for your work is, is anxious toil. What a picture. We'll come back to this in a minute. The bread of anxious toil. Right? Imagine, Dad, you're, you're with your kids for the day, and Mom's out somewhere, and you're like, Dad, what's for lunch today? Well, here, I made you a bread, a bread of anxious toil sandwich. Right? I, I mean, what an awful picture. Right? It's, it, and it's intentionally so. It's not filling. It's not satisfying. Uh, it, it's, it just eats you up on the inside. That's kind of the picture there. 
So, so that's the bad news. But then look what Solomon does, and it's just the last line of these two verses. But then comes the hope, and it is an offset. That's how it functions. Uh, those who labor on their own apart from the Lord, well, you're just going to eat the bread of anxious toil. But those who seek the Lord find rest. They find peace. He gives sleep to those he loves. He gives sleep to those he loves. That's, that, that, that's, um, it's, it's a contrast to everything he's said so far in the song. He gives sleep to those he loves. Why would, you, why would you try to work without him? He gives rest. Because sleep here, it functions as a picture of rest. That verse isn't kind of saying, you know, um, you'll, you'll, you'll get eight hours every night and you'll never toss and turn a little bit and that kind of thing. Uh, sleep is used here as a, uh, a, a stand-in for the whole concept of rest, and especially inner rest. Right? Have you ever been anxious about something? You go to bed, you've got some big day in the next day, and, and you don't sleep very well. Right? And, and why do you not sleep physically? Well, because you're not at rest on the inside. And so I think this picture of sleep here, he, what he's saying is, is that when our priorities are rightly ordered, when we're seeking the Lord first, the Lord's going to be working that inner peace. Paul calls it in Philippians, the peace that passes all understanding. He, he's going to be working that peace on the inside. And so that's one of the, now do we struggle with it sometimes? Yes. Do we have to fight to overcome anxiety? Yes. But, but fundamentally, those who seek the Lord first have access to an inner peace that the rest of the world does not have access to. And so that's pleasure number one. That brings us to pleasure number two, because not only do we enjoy inner peace, here's the next one we see in this psalm, uh, we also enjoy the pleasure of meaningful work. God gives meaning to our work. That's uh, another part of this here. Uh, Psalm 127 does it kind of through the bad news. Uh, Psalm 127 and 128, they're almost like good cop, bad cop a little bit here. Uh, Psalm 127 is the bad cop. It's like if you work without the Lord, you're wasting your time, banging your head against the wall. The wall. Uh, it's all vain, he says. Uh, your work is meaningless if you do it without the Lord. But then Psalm 128, good cop comes in. He says, ah, but here's the good news. Uh, the man who fears the Lord and walks in the way in his ways will have meaningful labor. It's, it's verse 2. Uh, what does he say? Um, and, and you see how he picks up the theme from the previous, the previous song. Uh, you shall eat, so the one who walks in his ways, you shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. And so you have this sharp contrast between the two. Uh, work without God, you, you're eating anxious toil. You're eating the bread of anxious toil if you try to do your life without God. But if you do your work life with God, you're going to eat the fruit of your own hands. So which one do you want to eat? Do you want to eat the, the fruit that you yourself have produced, or do you want to eat the bread of anxious toil, he says? All of which is a, a way of saying uh, that when we seek God first in our work, the Lord makes our work meaningful. The Lord makes our work meaningful. And this is partly because our work is already meaningful. We, I like to I've come back to this theme a few times over the years because it's such an important one. Work for men and women and students, you know, whatever work we do, uh, work is intrinsically meaningful. It's, it is intrinsically, like inherently meaningful to work because God created us to work. He put Adam and Eve in the garden to work the garden. So work is good. Fundamentally, in the creation order, work is good. And so our work is meaningful for that reason. But then what this psalm is going to add to that is that if in this broken world, now sin has been introduced and harmed what God originally intended, but nevertheless, for those who are seeking the Lord first in their work, and they're prioritizing correctly in their work, and they're doing their work in a way that honors him and is done with integrity and, and all those things we talk about, then he's going to infuse that work. He infuses our work with meaning because it's done unto him. 
And this is a big one for us as, as men. I'm sure it's an issue for women too, but, but it's especially one for men because, you know, kind of stereotypically anyway, we spend so much time on our, our work outside the home. And, and many men, we, we wrestle sometimes, we get anxious about our work because we wonder if, if, uh, if it is meaningful. We're kind of haunted by the fear that, that we're going to spend 40 or 50 years doing something that's pointless. But, but this helps us with that. This sets us free from that. The Lord, uh, our work is meaningful because of the Lord as we do it unto him. So that's pleasure number two. Uh, meaningful work. You see it there in those two psalms. The third pleasure, pleasure number three, of men who seek the Lord first, is that they will also enjoy a fruitful marriage. So these, these last two um, are, are especially focused on the family, although in the ancient world, work kind of revolved around family too, especially in an agricultural setting. But, but, the, but three and four are especially family-oriented. So a fruitful marriage. That's pleasure number, number three. Now remember, this is principle, not promise. And so we, you know, not everybody gets married, for example. That's just, you know, sometimes not everybody gets married. Uh, and sometimes even for those who do get married, sin gets in the way. Well, there's no sometimes about it. All of us who are married, sin gets in the way. Uh, and so sometimes, you know, marriages are harder than they need to be, and that's because of sin. Uh, but in principle, what this is saying is that if we seek the Lord first, if we make his values, his priorities, our highest ambition, here's what we're doing, man. Hold on to this, guys. We are vastly increasing the likelihood that we will have a joyful, fruitful marriage if we're seeking the Lord first in that marriage. I especially want younger people to hear that today, but uh, like I say, we can all stand to hear it. If we are seeking the Lord first in our marriages, we are vastly increasing the likelihood that we will have joyful, fruitful marriages. You see this in the, in the first half of verse 3, so we'll start with 128 this time. Uh, Psalm 128 uh, verse 3 says, Your wife, so first half of the verse, your wife will be like a fruitful vine. That's where I'm getting my word fruitful from. You will be a, she will be like a fruitful vine within your house. I really hope none of uh, my sisters are offended by being compared to a plant. Uh, it is not meant to be an offensive uh, comparison. It's really not. In fact, it's meant to be a beautiful, flattering image, the way uh, the psalm is, is using it here. And I say that because biblically, and we could actually talk for a long time about divine imagery in the Bible, but I want to zero in on two things that I think he wants us to think about here. Uh, there are two things in particular that a fruitful vine would make us think about as we read it in this context. The first is productivity. Productivity. Your marriage will bear fruit. It will, it will be productive, uh, fruitful in that sense. Um, Part of that fruit is children, and he actually talks about that in this text. It's the very next line. Your, your wife will be a fruitful vine, and your children will be like olive shoots uh, around the table. Notice both were around the table. The idea is within your household. And so children are part of it. Now, of course, not every couple has children, uh, but, but for those who do, that is a big part of the productivity of marriage. And sometimes we, we lose sight of that, um, but that's, you know, that's meant to be tied together. Um, Making a marriage and making babies. They, they, they go together. However, it's not the only part of it. Sometimes we become reductionistic and we act as if that's all that it's about. But biblically speaking, um, bearing children is just one of the ways that marriage, and, and men, as we think about our wives, our wives are, are productive. And for this, we won't read the whole thing this morning, but I'll just refer you to Proverbs. Remember, they're both wisdom literature. I'll refer you to Proverbs 31. Right, that long passage that the book ends with, the Proverbs 31 woman, uh, the wife of noble character, a wife of noble character who can find. Uh, that's how it starts. I think it starts with verse 10, Proverbs 31, 10. Uh, 
a wife of noble character who can find. Like, she's, she's priceless, is, is what he's saying. She's first worth far more than rubies. Her husband is full confidence in her. He lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. And then here's the wonderful thing about that passage. If you keep reading it, it's very obvious that even in the ancient world 3,000 years ago, he understood that his wife was way more than a baby machine. She was, she was doing so much for, for him and, and so much in the home and outside of the home. It talks about how she, she, she trades for, for goods outside of the home and she takes care of the poor. There's a verse in there that says that. And, and so the, the whole idea is that the wife of noble character which I think is a nice connection to chapter, three, uh, chapter 128, Psalm 128, verse 3. Uh, she, she's a productive wife. Right? She sees what needs to be done, and she does it. That's, that's the picture. And so a fruitful marriage, you guys, if, if we're seeking the Lord, this is what the Lord's going to bless us with. He's going to bless us with a productive, fruitful wife in that sense, if we're, if we're married. But there's also another side. So you have productivity as part of the fruitful. Uh, there's something else a fruitful vine symbolizes in Scripture, and it's pleasure. Right? So, and so sometimes it's the idea of wine. The fruit of the vine is, um, is wine, which brings joy to the heart. It can be abused, and you get into alcoholism and all that. But kind of many times wine and the fruit of the vine is used in this positive way uh, in, in the Bible. And so that's part of the, the pleasure of it. But then it's also the idea, actually, so the fruit of the vine is the idea of, of sexual pleasure. That's part of it, too, in the scriptures. And where you especially see that it's the Song of Solomon. And I think that we're meant to, to kind of make the connection, or I wouldn't make the connection with you this morning. Uh, but you see the same imagery in Song of Songs. Uh, chapter 1, uh, the woman is talking, the bride, and she says, My own vineyard. I have neglected. Uh, she's not talking about the yard. She's talking about her body. When you read that, you see she's, she, and she's kind of talking about how she wishes she was, um, she had taken better, it's a long story why she would say such a thing. She's, she's attractive, but she, she wishes she had taken care of herself better. My own vineyard I've neglected. I've been working out in the fields, is what she means. Uh, anyway, she does it again in chapter 8. Uh, says the same thing. My own vineyard uh, is mine to give. And again, she's talking about her physical body. Uh, in chapter 7, it gets even more, uh, more uh, erotic here. Uh, the husband is talking about his wife's body. He actually talks about her breasts, and he compares them to clusters of grapes. And he's talking to her. He says, your breasts are like clusters of grapes. She doesn't get embarrassed and squeamish. She runs with it, right? She picks up what he's putting down. And, and uh, in verse 12, she says, let's go to the vineyard. Right? She's, he's not talking about the garden. She's talking about herself. Let's go to the vineyard to see if the vines have budded. If their blossoms have opened, the pomegranates are in bloom, there I will give you my love. That's how Song of Songs uses the imagery of the vine, of, of uh, the fruit of the vine. And so my point, we go back to verse 3 of chapter 128, Psalm 128, when God says through the psalmist, your wife will be a fruitful vine, I think he's also talking about sexual pleasure, the intimate relationship between that husband and that wife. That, that's part of the blessing of marriage as well. The world says that sex is, is for outside of marriage. Right? Isn't that the message we get everywhere? Do it wherever, whenever, and with whoever you want. But like most things, the world doesn't know what they're talking about. Do not listen to them. That's not the good life. Do not listen to them. Uh, you younger folks, do not listen to them. The very best place to enjoy the pleasures of sexual intimacy is within marriage. It's worth waiting for. 
It's worth holding out. And you married people, uh, don't let them tell you you're missing out. Uh, we, we, this one echoes for, for some. You know, the world talks to us and looks down on us as if we're missing out on something. Oh, you're faithful to your wife? You've only slept with one woman your whole life? You've only slept with one man? What a sap. Right? Poor you. That's, that's the message we get sometimes. But once again, the world is wrong. They're the ones who are missing out. This is the good life. That's what he's saying. He's very deliberate about it. Uh, she will be a fruitful vine around your table, which is to, it's the same as that proverb that says, don't uh, pour out uh, your, your waters, um, don't let the waters from your cistern go flowing in the streets. It's the same idea. It's, it's the picture of, of exclusivity. You're not the one that's missing out. They're the ones that are missing out. So that's the, the third pleasure. It's fruitful marriage. Finally, last but not least, especially on Father's Day, uh, the fourth pleasure we see in this text is uh, impactful children. And, and I actually struggled with the, my wording here. There's a lot of different ways we could have went with this because I'm trying to summarize a lot of different things he says. But, but I think that's a, a good way to summarize it. Impactful children. Children who go out and make uh, the difference that God has called them to make in the world. It might not be the difference you wanted them to go make in the world, but, but they go out and they carry it forth. That's, that's that fourth pleasure, that fourth blessing. Again, we'll start with 128 and work backwards. Uh, it's verse 3. Uh, the man who fears the Lord and walks in his ways will have children who are like olive shoots. They will be like olive shoots around your table. Now, again, imagery. It's biblical metaphors. When we think about olive shoots, a couple things come to mind. Uh, one of them is usefulness. And so it actually connects with this kind of the same as what we said about uh, the marriage a moment ago. Um, olive shoots, it's like a young, the, the shoot is young, right? It's like children start out young. And so uh, olive shoots grow into olive trees. And olive trees produce olives, and olives are very, very useful. Actually, so are the olive trees. The, the wood from olive trees is very beautiful and very useful. Uh, the fruit from the olive tree, uh, there's the oil, the, there's all kinds of things you can do. It's a very useful. And so you have the idea of usefulness, productivity. That's part of the blessing here when he says, may your children be like olive shoots. Uh, the, another thing that's tied with it is the idea of a long-term perspective. And uh, that's one I wouldn't have thought about, but olive trees take a long time to grow. They do. It's not a quick plant. You know, it's not like the tomato plants that are in your garden. You plant them in April, you're harvesting by August, and it's dead by September, right? I mean, it's, that's, that's, you know, some, so many of our plants are just kind of quick. But uh, olive trees take decades, sometimes even centuries, uh, to, to mature, and, and they will keep bearing fruit that way. And so this idea that your children will be like olive shoots, it, it's the idea of a long-term Blessing. It's a long-term productivity, a long-term impact on the world. That's, that's the blessing there in Psalm 128. Psalm 127, I think, says something very similar, picking up in uh, verse 3 now. Famous image from this psalm. Uh, Behold, uh, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the, at the city gate. Uh, verse 3, uh, children are a heritage from the Lord. Another translation says reward from the Lord. Uh, it reminds me of something Martin Luther wrote. Uh, Martin Luther you know, wrote lots of things and they wrote down a lot of his sermons. Uh, he preached a sermon once on Psalm 128. Here was his take. Uh, he said, people who do not like children are swine, dunces, and blockheads. 
not worthy to be called men and women because they despise the blessing of God, the creator and author of marriage. Well, I might not have the nerve to put it quite as strongly as Luther did, but, but he is right. He's right. Uh, children are not a drag. They're not an obstacle. They're not a burden. Uh, the scriptures say they are a blessing. They're a blessing from God. Uh, you see this in the comparison with arrows. Uh, you could make a lot of the arrows. I remember hearing a sermon once. Actually, Pastor Al did it. Those of you who remember Pastor Al, and he spent like 10 minutes meditating on arrows. It was an excellent thought. Uh, but, but at the base, kind of just the simplest picture of the arrows here is just they're useful. It goes back to the idea of usefulness and making an impact. Arrows are good to have, especially if you're going into battle, which, which is his picture, warriors going into battle. Right? He says, blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. And you know, I don't think that means everybody has, is called to have a huge, huge families. Some are, and that's wonderful. But, but really what the idea is, is if you're going into battle, you don't want to run, in, run out of arrows. Right? The idea is that they're useful. Because if you're an archer and you go to war, when you run out of arrows, you're done. The archers didn't usually have swords, and even if they did, they weren't very good with them. And so it's this picture of, of usefulness, of, of helpfulness to, to, the, to the archer. And then you're getting the same thing in verse 5. Uh, he will not be put to shame at the city gate. And the idea there, in the ancient world, legal disputes were settled at the gates of the city. So if you think of the book of Ruth, at the end of Ruth, when they're trying to settle up who's going to get to marry Ruth, where does that whole scene unfold? It unfolds at the city gate. And the city gate is the place where accusations are made, it's where disputes are handled, all that kind of stuff was, would happen. That's kind of where they'd hold court, if you would. And so what that last verse says is, uh, the man who seeks the Lord will have children who, who defend him, who take his side, who stand up for him, who protect him. All of that's kind of put in there. Uh, they, they, will, they will be impactful for him and they will be impactful for the world. They will, they will watch out for him when the need arises. And so, again, there's a, a lot there with that with children, but fundamentally they are presented here as a pleasure. Those who seek the Lord first will be blessed uh, with, with impactful not perfect, but impactful children. That's, that's the fourth pleasure we see in this text. Years ago, a, a man named Ben Patterson, he was always one of my favorites, I always tried to read his stuff. Ben Patterson uh, wrote an article in Leadership Journal, and uh, it was a great article, and I want to close with a story he told in that, in that article. It's a story on himself. Uh, pa Patterson writes, Blythe, B-L-Y-T-H-E. Blythe is a desert town on the Arizona-California border. My family and I were on our way back home from vacation when we stopped at a McDonald's in Blythe. Loretta, my wife, asked me to hold Mary, our 18-month-old daughter, while she went to the restroom and our three sons romped in the play area. So you got the picture. Father of four, his wife's in the restroom, he's got the baby, the boys are scampering around. Picture me, he says, holding my daughter a few feet from the restroom doors as the babe from Blythe emerged from behind those doors. She was gorgeous, tanned and dressed as well as young women are wont to dress in warm desert climates. And she was looking right at me, smiling warmly. I straightened up and smiled back, flushed with the adolescent conceit that even though I was much older than she was, I must still be a very attractive man. Babes still take notice. 
Our, aisle, our smiles and eyes met for longer than a mere random encounter as she walked past. Then I noticed my reflection in the mirror along the wall and saw who she was smiling at. It was me, all right. But it wasn't Ben Patterson, mature hunk. It was Ben Patterson, Mary's daddy. He was middle-aged, a little lumpy, and holding a precious child. That's what delighted the babe. My first reaction was embarrassment. Silly fool, you aren't what you thought you were. But as I continued to look in the mirror, I decided I liked what I saw there, more than I liked what I first thought the babe saw. I like being Mary's daddy. I like it a lot. It's better to be a daddy than a stud. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we thank you for these pleasures that you have sketched out for us and laid out for us in these psalms this morning. It is better to be a daddy. It is better to be a husband who is faithful to his wife and cares for her. It's better to be a worker who works as unto the Lord and not unto men. It is better to bask in the inner peace and rest that comes with seeking you and you first and foremost in this world. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to do that. I pray for my brothers in this room and who are watching afterwards or online. I pray for the women, too. May we all be people who seek you first and are not caught up in the ways of this world, but rather make first things first, who allow your word to set our priorities and to determine for us what the right pleasures are. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.